0: Well, the bulletin lies to you this morning because it tells you something that isn't true. Namely, that we're going to be studying Psalm 19 again. We won't. We're going to be studying Psalm 1. As I thought about the graduates and went around to the parties yesterday, um, it was very clear that there are times to focus on the occasion at hand. And the occasion at hand today is 9... of our loved ones the people that we love and you know we do love you you think that that's said cheaply but it's not you are welcome in our home when you leave town which some of you will be doing and others won't it doesn't matter where you go you may call us if you need money you may ask and when you leave our hearts will be sad And so it's fitting that we give you a portion of Scripture on this day as we think about your departure from your homes. Even those of you that will be going to school here at IU, I'm sure you are desperately clawing and fighting to separate yourself, to individuate from the home that you grew up in. And so even you are departing in one sense. And I would like this morning to have you focus your attention on Psalm 1. This psalm is called by some the psalm of psalms, as the song of Songs is also called a similar way. And it is the psalm that sets the tone for 150 chapters of this book. What we have said last week is the prayer book of the Christian. And there's a wonderful shortness, succinctness, a wonderful compression of all the truths of Scripture in this psalm. Now I want to ask you this morning, particularly graduates, but any of you that are at transition points in your life, and many of you probably are not at a transition point in your life, but you ought to be. I want to ask you, if you were to spend some time giving yourself a 360, this is something that's becoming common in corporations where they ask an individual at the center of attention to ask, a number of people, their family, their colleagues at work, maybe even their pastor, their elders, to write critiques and evaluations of them. And then they barrage this person with the perceptions of everybody that's close to them. It's kind of maybe the, the opposite positive side of uh, what sometimes with an alcoholic you'll do where you'll, you'll invade them in their home and give them a negative evaluation. Well, Psalm 1 is a perfect instrument to use to do this kind of evaluation of yourself. In other words, if you were to sit down and you were to look at yourself and say, Who am I? Where am I? Where am I headed? Certainly, graduation from high school is a time you ought to be asking yourself that question. And this is a beautiful opportunity for self-examination. I want, as I preach this summer, to hit a number of times the theme that true religion consists of two things. Knowing God, and nobody would argue with that, but what we often forget is that the other aspect of true religion is what? It's knowing yourself. And if you know God, but you don't know yourself, you really don't know God. Because to know God is to know yourself. And you cannot know yourself until you know God. These things are intimately related. We all know people who seem to have, and this is not a positive statement in this case, seem to have absolutely no self-critical capacities. Now sometimes it's an endearing trait. There can be people who are completely oblivious to themselves and it's delightful because it's humility. But there are some people who... Uh, As Rita Cuffey, my dear sister in the Lord who recently died, put it, uh, his mother certainly doesn't have to worry about his self-esteem. And such a person does not know themselves. Such a person has lost the second half of true religion, which is to know ourselves. If we're going to know ourselves, uh, there's a beautiful opportunity we have here in Psalm 1. Now, let me make a comment before we read it. And that is that self-examination assumes judgment. And judgment assumes both positive and negative. And I'm going to hit this hard because we hate this. I keep saying over and over that sort of the essence of postmodernism and a deconstruction culture of our modern world is a hatred for distinction. And... Uh, the whole purpose of judgment is a distinction. If the only verdict a jury can give is not guilty, it's not a jury, it's not a trial, there's no justice. Um, and so self examine presumes judgment and judgment presumes both positive and negative judgments. You have no judgment if you can only come up with one verdict. Modern man hates judgment and is opposed to all distinctions, let alone the foundational distinction of good and evil and of righteous and wicked." In other words, the category of moral conduct, but also the category of person who fits under those moral conduct categories. In other words, if you have actions that can be good and evil, then you also have people that can be good and evil, but we're barely willing to acknowledge that there are actions that are just plain evil. All right, And if we're barely willing to do that, we absolutely are resistant to ever categorizing anybody as wicked or evil. Now, what's the sense of being Christians if we don't love the Bible? And what's the sense of loving the Bible if what it teaches doesn't have the ability of bashing our brains in we've got corrupted by our culture? And that's why the Bible is called, or I should say that's why the Bible calls itself a hammer. The reason it's a hammer is that God's way is not our way. As the heavens are high above the earth, so God's thoughts are above our thoughts, His ways above our ways. He's not like us. And I, for one, find that a tremendous relief. <laughs> right? Can you imagine if God were like your husband? That would be a very depressing thought. Let alone me, or Lucas. Now, I know there are many good traits to Lucas and to your husband, but none of us want God to be an idol that we have made. So, graduates, commit yourself to self examination, commit yourself to judgment, and therefore commit yourself to right and wrong as a category of action, and therefore. As a category of person. And you'll be ready to hear Psalm 1. Scripture is a book of distinctions. And those of you that know the Bible, I'm going to run through just a few of them. Start in the Old Testament, you have the distinction between the clean and the unclean. How much of the Old Testament? Think of David. Think of David writing this psalm. When David wrote this psalm, how much of the Bible did he have? had about the first five books of the Bible. And in the first five books of the Bible, how much of those books is taken up simply with making the distinction between clean and unclean? It's huge. That's why none of us like to read it and read through the Bible in a year. It gets really old. You know, what kind of hoofs they have. Clean and unclean. Then I would like you to think of Noah. You have those that are in the ark and those that are in the what? Huh? The water. And it's not a nice place to be in the water. Then what about Sodom? Those who are in Sodom and those who are doing what? Fleeing Sodom. And then a category in the middle that ends up being saved, but only barely, right? The ones looking back at Sodom? No. They're lost, too. Even the ones fleeing, but casting a longing eye back at Sodom. They're gone. Remember? Lot's wife. So you've got clean, unclean, ark, water, Sodom, and fleeing Sodom. You've got circumcised and uncircumcised. Now, now there's a distinction circumcised, uncircumcised. Remember what David called Goliath? Uncircumcised Philistine. It wasn't a compliment. And in the New Covenant, we have baptized and we have unbaptized. And we've lost the ability to see this as a basic distinction. Over in England, you have what? 95% of everybody baptized and on Sunday morning, 3% in church. In an environment like that, baptism has lost its ability to show what God intended it to show. And that is that there are those who belong to God and have been baptized and those who belong to Satan and are unmarked. And this is why the church is so intense when it comes to examining people for baptism. We don't just throw baptism around. Because why? Because God ordained it to be a method of making distinctions between people. And then... Jesus in his teaching constantly is talking about those who are saved and those who are lost. Jesus teaches more than anybody else in Scripture the doctrine of hell. We have this image of Jesus that's been formed by our culture instead of by the Word. So there are the saved and there are the lost. And then ultimately all of these distinctions lead to one place, right? And that place is the judgment seat of God where all the Supreme Court justices of the United States will one day stand. And at that judgment seat, the final decree is given of heaven and hell. And if you do not believe in hell, then absolutely nothing I've said makes any sense because every single one of these distinctions is pointing to that point in time And when I write the judgment seat, or that day, in a a, a document I'm writing, you know what I always do? I always capitalize it. Capital T, that. Capital D, day. It's real weird. But when people read that, I want them to know that this is not just a hypothetical concept. That this is an actual point in time that is coming because God has said it is coming. When I write the word truth and I'm referring to the truth of Scripture, I capitalize it. I know the Chicago Manual of Style says don't do it. But I do it because I want all of us to realize this is reality. This is not just one more religious trip of a particular group of people at a particular time who have recorded what they think maybe ultimate things are. Clean, unclean. In the ark, in the water. Fleeing Sodom, in Sodom, or looking back at Sodom. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Baptized, unbaptized. Saved, lost, and ultimately heaven and hell. Now, it would be a very sad thing if the book that God gave us for us to be saved through. I know the Bible doesn't save us and we don't worship it without its knowledge, we couldn't be saved. It would be very sad if that book did not reinforce the very truths eternally that God has decreed, and he has decreed heaven and hell. And sure enough, the book does reinforce it. In fact, it's from the book that we know about this. And in this book, we find out that we are to distinguish ourselves by holiness. In Leviticus 19, the Lord said to Moses, verses 1 and 2, Speak to the entire assembly, in other words, the whole congregation of Israel, and say to them what? Be holy, because why? Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So because we belong to Jesus, we are to be holy, and that means we are to distinguish ourselves by holiness. Now, think of graduates again for a second. I think it's a fate worse than death and have to sit through a commencement address at a pagan college. I once had to do it at McAllister, which also is a purportedly Presbyterian school. It's where DeWitt Wallace, the Reader's just gave all his money because they had once kicked him out. It's kind of funny, at least I think it's funny. my brothers went there and my brother David was graduating or Nathan I forget which one they were a year apart and I sat through the most disgusting address I don't remember who gave it I do but it, it was it was nothing but platitudes but it was a very enlightened set of platitudes it's platitudes of very very smart people who use big words but it was devoid of any truth in fact everything about it was a lie it was just one lie after another you know, the kind of talk where they say, you know, be all you can be. And, you know, the only thing limiting you is fear. And the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. And the whole world is in front of you. And you you go out and grab your destiny and make sure that you're tolerant as you do it. And, you know, make sure that you, you, you show that you're an educated woman, an educated man. and And make this world a better place and on and on and on. And it absolutely boggles your mind that in all of this verbiage there's not one reference to God and to the Word, this Word. And so it's all completely empty. I mean, it's just completely empty. What it really is is a self-celebration of the enlightened who have given themselves to education. That's what it is. Well, that's academia, but many of your parents have given you just as worthless advice. or Your grandparents or some of the cards that Hallmark sent to you. For instance, they might be saying, work hard and you'll get ahead. That's a good one. Um, they might say, go along to get along. That's another good one. They might say, as you select your college, it's all in who you know. They might say, and this is probably your father, look, I'm paying good money for tuition. Don't waste it. (laughs) I worked with an older man named Enoch, born in 1899 when I was in seminary. We both gardened together. And I remember Enoch telling me what his mother said to him as he left her in Boston to go to New York. And the final thing she said to him was, if you never take your first drink, you'll never have a problem. Well, it's not bad advice. Well, what advice is there? Turn with me to Psalm 1, and I'm I'm going to do it from the King James because that's how I memorized it. But Psalm 1 has advice for us that's not grounded in sentimentality and pride of knowledge. It's not grounded in the desire of a father to not see his money wasted, but it's grounded in the eternal God who is truth himself. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. By the way, in connection with that, if you'll go back to Psalm 146, I think it is. I got such a kick out of this this last week. Um, no, it's not 146. Let's see. Huh. I'm not going to be able to find it. Anyhow, one 140. Maybe it's 145. Yes, it is. Now I just have to find it. There, verse 7. Great, look at verse 3. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. What? And we'll shout joyfully of your righteousness. I'm looking for the day that we shout with joy at the righteousness of God in our worship. Here Psalm 1 has been read. And Psalm 1 is a beautiful summary of all the truths that are contained in the book of Psalms. It's the first of 150 and Basil early church father says what the foundation is to a house and the keel to a ship and the heart to an animal. This Psalm is to the whole book of Psalms. It is a preface to the Psalter. Now what it says here is that the identifying characteristic of a godly person can be summed up into two categories, one negative, the other positive. And, it starts with the negative. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a little book called What is an Evangelical? And it used to be that anybody that was going to be uh, become a member here was asked to read this book. We don't do that anymore, but I encourage you all to read it. It's a short little book called What is an Evangelical? And in that book, he makes the point that an evangelical is committed to saying God's no as well as God's yes. He's committed to exposing evil as well as to... Being devoted to good, and here we see that this is the habit in the Book of Psalms. This is the habit all through Scripture, but we see it right here in the Psalm that the godly person is characterized by things that he doesn't do and things that he doesn't do, that he does do. And how do we start? Well, we start with the things he doesn't do. All right, and there is a progression in the things that he doesn't do. And there's a parallelism. In other words, when scripture, when poetry wants to make a point over and over again, it's causing us to meditate by the sheer frequency with which it says it. That's parallelism. And we see the parallelism here. Man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the path of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Boom, boom, boom. And you see that it goes from walking to standing to sitting. You see that it goes from counsel to path to seat. All right. It's very clear what's going on here. The person who is not godly is a person who, and Alexander Pope says it well in a quote, Vice is a monster of such frightful mean countenance as to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure and then pity and then embrace. And that's what you see going on here. The walking counsel, standing path, sitting seat. We first endure and then pity and then embrace. So there's a progression here, a a, a growing being at home with wickedness here. And what we learn from this is, of course, there are distinctions. Of course, uh, we also learn that the negative must be said and that the godly person is first characterized by what he doesn't, she doesn't do. But we also see that one of the reasons we are not to do these things is that there is contagion in disease. There is contagion in spiritual condition. We have to understand that the reason we are not to give ourselves to the counsel of the ungodly, the path of sinners and the seat of scoffers, is that if we do, we will become contagiously affected, infected. Um, Spiritual diseases... Are potent and they are catchable. Now, this principle is all through life and we see it most clearly in uh, physical diseases. It's very, very interesting to think about public health and to see what diseases people are willing to see quarantined and what diseases they're not willing to see quarantined. Have you ever thought about that? To me, the crowning irony of the SARS thing is not that some hundreds of people are dying or thousands. The crowning irony is with SARS, the whole world is willing to see these people quarantined. Why SARS? Well, the reason is that SARS is not associated with... um, certain choices that people make and therefore it doesn't single them out. You just catch it by coughing or sneezing or having your hands not washed or something like that. So there's no value judgment in putting people at home with the doors locked. And we have a couple that are friends of ours that were in China to adopt a child a few months ago and uh, then went back to their home in Toronto and spent a good deal of time in quarantine in Toronto because of the possibility of contagions diseases uh, having been brought over from, uh, from China through Hong Kong to here. Well, think about spiritual diseases and you'll see the same principle here. Uh, God makes it clear in these verses that we can catch wickedness, that associations with those who are wicked are destructive to the man of God, that you can't be a man of God and give yourself to evil associations. Now, again, even this principle, which is not a principle of disease, is evidenced by, the, by the, uh, the, the law when you're on parole, what? That you're not allowed to associate with known felons. Isn't that interesting? So even the law has certain ways that it shows that it recognizes that you can catch spiritual problems from other people. You know, They're not worried about you touching hands and not washing them with a felon. They're worried that you will get together and there will be critical mass of criminality and you will plot to rob a bank or to do an act of violence. Uh, Evil associations corrupt good morals. Well, what a wonderful thing to tell you, Andrew, as you go off to Rhodes College. I mean, if there is anything that is pressure on a freshman, what is it? It is the people that you live with on the floor of your dorm and whether or not you're going to pledge and join a drunken fraternity. Now, I know not all fraternities are drunken, as Rob Hooper would tell me if he were here. Nevertheless, a lot of them are, and I have my son's word for that. Well, it's not just a question of whether you go into the Greek system or not, but it's a question of friendships from the very beginning. It's very hard to have your children go away to college, for those of you that haven't done it yet. And uh, Heather was hardest, and then Joseph was very hard. And we all got in the car, and we drove down to Nashville, and we took him to his dorm at Vanderbilt, and he was in a room all alone. It was about the size of this podium. (laughs) And it was very ugly and we moved to men, and one of the things we had done is we had given him a two volume set of Jonathan Edwards works when he graduated and so we put it up on his shelf his shelf built in and then you know you look up and down the hall and you just hope that it's a hall that has uh, washrooms that are only for boys um, you know that's the kind of thing a parent hopes for today what a world we live in and uh So, finally, the time's come. We put it off long enough. It's time to get out of there. We're going to look sappy and sentimental. So, the whole family gathers around and we pray over Joseph. And we ask that the Lord will protect him, that the Lord will guide him, that the Lord will continue to work in his heart, making him into a man of God. And then we leave. And I'm the first to leave because it's time just to get out of there. That's the way you deal with pain. So I walk out his door and I'm going up the hall and I just glance up into the next room right next to his and I see up there sitting on the wall in the bookshelf almost in the same spot as our son's room, the two-volume set of Jonathan Edwards. And I go, whoa. <laughs> and just to check, I back up and I look into my son's room and and then I look. And I could not believe it. I walked in the room. I said, who are you? <laughs> he said, well, my name's Joe. I said, there's, Now, there's two Joes right next to each other. And both of them have a set of Jonathan Edwards up on their, on their shelves. And I said, where did you even hear of Jonathan Edwards? What if I could get a two-volume set of his works and decide to bring it to college your freshman year? And he said, well, my brother went off to school and he became a Christian at school and he came home and witnessed to me. And he gave me some books by John Piper. And when I read John Piper's books, I saw he was drinking at the well of Jonathan Edwards. So I bought the volume. I thought I might as well drink where Piper drinks. Now, that's the choice that you have. You say, well, there's no choice. Joseph, your son, didn't make the choice to have Job next to him. And I say, did you notice in our text that it says, he shall be like a tree that is, what? Planting himself by the rivers of water. Now I know, you say, oh, here we go with this reform trip. Notice, it says, he shall be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water. And you know what God did? God planted my son next to the rivers of water. And so his leaf didn't wither and whatsoever he did prospered. And do you know the guy who lived next to him, his name is Joe, and I don't know how to say it. How do you say it? Diggerness or Digurnus or something. Do you know how to say it? Anyhow, that's his name. And if you go to a number of our computers, you'll find hymns that he and his brother recorded in their living room. Absolutely beautiful hymns. So now I'm planted next to that river of water. Okay, He's a double bass player, Andy. And he's the guy that knows, what's his name? Edgar. Edgar. Yes, he's the one that knows Edgar. And so here we have God planting us by the rivers of water. Why? Because God says that he will be a God to us and to our children. Now, this is God working through associations. We're told not to make negative associations. We're told that God will plant us next to the rivers of water. And central to the planning is associations. And pretty soon I found out that whole floor was filled with Christians. And so here I am, a father, thinking of giving my son up, you know. And I tell you, this is pretty intense. You don't know. You will know someday. And here God has next to him a godly young man who's a root out of dry ground and is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. The whole floor is filled with him. You know why? Because he chose to be in a dorm on a floor that was not co-ed. And guess what? All the students who choose not to be on floors that are co-ed, the majority of them are Christians. Now, there were a few conservative Jews. All right? The Bible says that the godly man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners and he doesn't sit in the seat of the mockers. Now, here's an interesting thing. What does this mean his associations are if this is what they are? Well, you would think if you were going to look at the seesaw of the text of scripture they say okay he doesn't walk he doesn't stand it's very focused on people and evil associations and contagious diseases that are caught spiritually right so the opposite is instead he's in church every Sunday and all his friends are Christians and isn't that what you'd expect something approximating that but it doesn't say that do you know what it says it says but his delight is in godly people right is that what it says no it says his delight is what It's in what? Come on. The law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates what? Day and night. Now, remember I say that sort of every text of Scripture is a joke with a punchline. Okay? Always look for the hook. And here's the hook. The parallel doesn't work there because it goes from people to a book. Well, now, why does it go to a book? It goes to a book. What? Well, yeah, it goes, it goes to a book because we're all sinners. But the, you're, yes, that's true. But you're assuming something and saying that that needs to be said explicitly. And that is no person can counteract, but only the person of who? Jesus Christ. In other words, it is in this book that we meet the one who is the balance to the ungodly and to the scoffers and the wicked. All of you have had the experience that I had so many times growing up. I finally had found God in a man, right? First, I thought it was my dad. Then I thought it was my youth pastor. And then I thought it was Ken Hansen. Now, don't worry, it wasn't in this order. But there were all these men, Uncle Joe Coffin, I can think of all these men, Colonel Harvey in 6th grade, made me memorize John 15, all these men that were godly. And so I'd worship them, and then kabam! You know, all of a sudden I'd find out that they were a man, huh? You know, yes, they are a man, right? And my life as a young man was learning that God is not pleased to have his glory shared with anyone. God is very jealous for his glory. And so instead of directing us to people, even Paul, the Apostle Paul, God directs us from the wicked where? Directly to himself. And it is in the Word of God that you meet God. And he is the only one to have your heart delight in. God is the only one that you can love without a hook. He's the only one that you can love and never be disappointed. For one thing, how many of you have had to grow up and have your parents divorced or die? God will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't have to get attached to your father and he dies and then you have to go through the next 40 years of your life without your father, which is a terrible thing. Because if God is your father and if he teaches you what fatherhood is, he will never become twisted. And so think about this. The balance to evil associations and spiritual contagions is what? It is God. And how do you know God? You don't know God by sitting down and going into a mantra and tucking your legs up real close to your body and, like, you know, having your fingers in some weird position and being vegan and, you know, like getting in touch with your metaphysical side or, you know, studying anthropology, you know, getting in tune with natives who are back closer to nature, you know. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know? No. What a, what a pitiful lie. The way you get in touch with God is not by trying to empty your mind, but it is by filling your mind with the Word of God. Because this is where God has revealed Himself. Now, if that's a scandal to you, there's no hope for you. Because remember, nature only reveals enough to condemn you but it cannot save you. Even when you get so close as to be sacrificing chickens because you have some sense that blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins, it's still chickens. All right? Only Scripture leads you to the blood of Jesus Christ, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Now, let me ask you the question graduates and everyone else. Um, What is your commitment? Who are you? As you go off to college and as the rest of us evaluate ourselves, do we associate with sinners and with the wicked and with the scoffers? Now, at about this point, it would be very easy for us to think that uh, all we have to do to avoid the negatives of the wicked is to avoid going down to People's Park or to avoid hanging out at the Bullwinkle or to avoid uh, watching HBO or MTV all the time. In fact, I want to I point out something. This is just too much and I have to read it and it's pretty old, but boy, it really grabs us. This is an editorial in the New York Times, the until a few weeks ago, the paper of record. All right. And this is dated uh, September 13th, 1994. Listen to this, this is their editorial. The headline is MTV Rules, all right? In Chinese, the word satellite dish translates literally as heavenly thread. A year ago, the Chinese government tried to snip about 500,000 of these threads to forestall what they called, quote, spiritual pollution, unquote, due to MTV, Baywatch, and The Simpsons. The decree banned virtually all private satellite dishes ordering owners to take them down or face heavy pines. Foreigners can continue to receive the broadcasts in their homes and offices. We're happy, says the Times, to note that spiritual pollution continues apace. Guess you know where they're coming from. And with it, defiance of the totalitarian state. Oh, you guys, it is rich. The Times' Philip Sheenan reports that an independent audit being circulated by Rupert Murdoch's Star TV, the Pan-Asian Satellite Service suggests that the number of Chinese homes receiving satellite broadcasts has actually increased since the crackdown from 49% to 55% in Guangzhou, one of China's free market boom towns, and from 9% to 13% and more orthodox Beijing. With their life savings invested in the dishes, Chinese are not about to dismantle or destroy them. In Beijing, they have hidden them instead. In free willing cities like Gang How do you say that? Guangzhou? Guangzhou? Okay. In cities like Guangzhou, they are right out in the open. Now, listen, here's the end. The story is much the same in other dictatorships. See, this is America's God. We believe in democracy and we believe in hatred of totalitarianism. We define totalitarianism as any country that would tell you you couldn't morally pollute yourself with the Simpsons. All right? All right. The story is much the same in other dictatorships. A few small, tightly controlled countries have successfully banned the dishes, but even rapidly anti-American Iran has been hesitant to crack down for fear of a backlash from fans of dynasty. And here is the final paragraph in the final sentence. America's most potent export is, was, and will always be its popular culture. So what's the answer? Is it to avoid MTV because it's so bad that even China sees it? Okay. Now, the answer is, and I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me because it's a very interesting twist. We read it a few weeks ago. Again, talking about making distinctions and associations, look at 1 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 9. The Apostle Paul is dealing with the fact that corruption has come into the church, and a notorious corruption. And he is livid, he is furious at the fact that the church sits back with pride while this corruption has entered her house. All right? And he's trying to get them to cast it out. But, of course, they don't want to make distinctions. They don't want to judge anybody. They just want to hang out with each other and and see everything as as endless shades of gray, right? And so he says in verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. You see this again? I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any what so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are with outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So I want to make this point to you graduates and to all of us. If you look at yourself and you're saying, "Do I ad- refuse to associate with evil people?" Okay, I would encourage you to be more careful about philosophy professors and Christians than frat dudes, because the level of sophistication and enticement with false Christians and with proud philosophers is absolutely lethal. After a year of being an engineering major, my son Joseph decided he thought he would go into philosophy because he liked logic, because he likes puzzles. And so philosophy was where you took logic, and oh, my heart just about died. I said, Joseph, that's fine if you do that, but be aware that in my experience, there is no department I have ever known that so consistently puts out pride as its export than philosophy. Now, if you're a philosopher, the Lord bless you. They need Christian philosophers. But the principle is we don't just say the counsel of the ungodly, the way of sinners, the seat of the scoffers, and that means we don't watch MTV. All right. The principle is that we're sophisticated. Did you notice how that last chapter that we read in, in our scripture lesson ended? It said, in understanding be What? It said be mature, and that means these judgments have to be careful. You know how you know that you should avoid an association is you find yourself being led into the attitude of a scoffer, the attitude of a cynic, the attitude of a sarcastic person. You find yourself taking on the form of the person. And most likely, there will be blatant, honest, ungodly pagans on your floor that when you hang out with them, they talk about, you know, women they've been with, drugs they've done. But never are you seduced to conform yourself to their lifestyle because you are what? You're witnessing to them. But you go into churches where they have consistently defied the word of God on issue after issue after issue after issue and let me tell you, you will conform yourself to that church and that is wicked if you look at Jesus and you look at his conflict with the religious rulers of his time the most consistent people that he warned his followers against were the people that were the leaders of the church And so if I were to say to you, Drew, and the rest of you going somewhere else, Andrew Howe and uh, Andrew Wagner, what is my greatest concern for you? It is that you pick an association of Christians where they will not associate with people who call themselves brothers and who defy the living God, who are greedy, who are gossips, who are slanderers, who think nothing of fornication and adultery, who deny that God has made men and women different. These are the issues that will really test you in your associations. Instead, you'll avoid them like the plague and you'll find a church that will itself lead you to delight in the Word of God, to meditate on the Word of God day and night. Okay? It's getting too personal, right? Drew has been sitting up front since you were, what, six, five, eleven years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, that's what I want for you. That's what your parents want. And you know, Amber, as you go to Australia, it's a pagan place. Where are you, Amber? It's a pagan place. And we want you to be a light shining. Yesterday, Andy talked about salt. Yesterday, Ben said, Are we going to be on the foundation of God's Word? And that's what you guys need to do. So anyhow, that's the message for you this morning. Um, We all pray and desire to see you forsake the wicked, whether they come in the guise of good Christians or whether they come in the guise of just scoffers like John Stuart Mill. Uh, But instead, we want you to be devoted to the Word of God. Let me close with an illustration. That same Enoch that I told you about earlier was a godly man. And I worked with him for most of three years. And my image of Enoch, he had gotten arthritis so bad that the main reason he was hired was to watch the house because of the priceless things in that house. And my memory of Enoch is going into the kitchen And seeing him sit in the breakfast room, they didn't have a nook. It was like this huge room that was breakfast off the kitchen. And Enoch would sit on the couch there next to a table. And he had a big Bible that was in his lap. And if you would look at the Bible, what you'd find is that every page of that Bible was underlined with multiple colored felt pens. And what it was is that he wanted to keep track of how often he had read every scripture. So he started off with like a blue, then he went to a yellow, then he went to a red, and it just had line after line after line in that Bible. And that's how he spent his life, was reading the Bible. Now, that's boring. Let me tell you, you want boring, you listen to a commencement address. That's boring. You know what boring is? It's predictable. Now, there's one thing that the Academy is. It is absolutely predictable. And I defy you to predict one word of this book. It's delightful. (laughs) It really is. Every time you open it, you go, whoa! You know, it snookers you every single time. Who would ever come up with women being silent in a church? Let's pray.